it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that three-hour window, we appreciate you being here listening live. If you can't, there's a podcast for that. Every day it's on demand. It is free, the whole show. GuyBensonShow.com for all of that information about listening live, the podcast, and much more. GuyBensonShow.com. You might recall that yesterday I at least hinted that I'd be off today on assignment in Florida. That was the plan. Spoiler alert, I am not in Florida. I did not make it to Florida. The travel gods did not smile upon me, to put it very mildly. I will tell the tale of woe at the end of the show today. But not in Florida, but here with you today and tomorrow, and thrilled to be here. And we have a lot to get to as well, including on the program today, Kerry Severino coming up later this hour on the Supreme Court decisions Today and earlier in the week as well, still nothing on abortion. That's probably coming next week, but a big guns decision today. People are melting down. People melt down constantly. You don't get your way in a Supreme Court ruling, just meltdown. We'll get actual serious analysis from Ms. Severino. Miranda Devine will be here in the next hour talking about a number of issues, including immigration. She has a new exclusive out. We'll ask her about it. Andy McCarthy also in our final hour will be here. Andy on, yes, the Supreme Court cases, but also the January 6th committee. He has been watching all of it and writing assiduously about the proceedings. We will get his take and analysis upcoming today on the show. You can follow us here on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can follow me personally if you'd like at Guy P. Benson on both Twitter and and Instagram. Well, I want to get to something that people keep asking me about, even though I don't really want to talk about it that much. But before I do that, I just have to play you this soundbite. This is President Biden. I don't know if you caught this. President Biden at the White House basically instructing gas stations and the companies that run gas stations. By the way, a lot of them are owned by just families, mom and pop locations but instructing gas stations to lower prices because we're in a time of war. Cut five. Here's the president. So let's be honest with one another. My message is simple to the companies running gas stations and setting those prices at the pump. This is a time of war, global peril, Ukraine. These are not normal times. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you are paying for the product. Do it now. Do it today. Oh, that's simple. That's a simple message. Just bring down the price. Bring down the price. You got that, gas stations? Just bring down the price. The president says so. 
he has no idea what he's doing. He's flailing. He doesn't understand basic economics. He doesn't understand how things work. He's helped contribute to this problem on inflation broadly in a major way and on gas prices through his own stated policies and campaign promises. When he's out there on the campaign trail making all these pledges about ending fossil fuels, a bunch of people applaud. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. The planet. Climate change. These are things that we're supposed to agree with, so yes, progress. And then when you actually get down to the very painful brass tacks of what that looks like, with families getting squeezed, it doesn't seem so pleasant or applause-worthy anymore. And he wants you to pretend like all of the statements that he made and the actions in pursuit of those policies and that agenda, those can't be talked about those don't exist, and you're going to say, oh, there's 9,000, what, like, whatever that talking point is, right? He's got his talking points. Putin was another one of them. And all the other stuff, just pay no heed. Pay no attention to that. Pay no attention to the trillions in spending that contributed to how bad the inflation has gotten. Basically across the board. And the guy's lost. He won't take responsibility. He doesn't want to be held accountable. He wants to pretend like the stuff that he has said and, more importantly, done on these fronts is irrelevant, not to be spoken of. And he says, okay, we're going to do a gas tax holiday temporarily. Even his own party is saying it's a gimmick that will do nothing. He's like, okay, I'm going to wag my finger and tell gas stations, just lower your prices, just do it, do the thing. His press secretary, what did she say last week? Telling... Oil companies, do the capacity. Oh, well. I wish people had thought of that earlier. Let's just do the capacity, guys. Why haven't we been doing the capacity? Oh, we should just lower prices? Oh, genius. Thank God we have the president to go to the podium at the White House and say the solution to lowering prices is to just do it. Lower prices, man. It's a war. It's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. And I hear people saying, oh, what's the Republican plan? Well, you might not like it, but it exists. The Republican plan is let's not spend trillions of dollars in wasteful spending while a bunch of economists are worried about inflation and warning not to do it. The Democrats proposed $7 trillion in new spending during this administration alone. They passed $2 trillion of it. They almost passed $5 more trillion of it. Two Democrats stood in the way of that, and thank God all the Republicans as well. So that would be one thing. The Republicans' plan is don't do that. Stop that. And on energy and gas prices, it's not an immediate solution. It's a longer-term solution, and hear me out. Here's what it is. Don't try to put U.S. domestic energy companies out of business. Don't tell them and the, com- and the country broadly that you're going to end the sources of energy on which the vast majority of the country relies and will for some time. In fact... Do the capacity, quote-unquote, in a way that's sustainable. 
encourage and foster that capacity, encourage exploration, development, and exploitation of our resources, encourage our allies to help us move this fuel and these energy sources safely from point A to point B, rather than canceling those uh, those projects, canceling leases, suspending these operations, demonizing the entire industry every chance you get, and then demanding that they do a bunch of magical stuff when your political hide is threatened. That's the Republican plan. That's the conservative plan. Not sure if that's satisfying to everyone, but it sounds a lot better than whatever the hell this is right now from this crew. All right, meanwhile, I teased this at the very top, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday. I asked Josh Holmes about it. I asked Josh Krasauer about it. I didn't really want to go much beyond it, but I have gotten so many notes from people. Messages, texts, emails, DMs about this one poll in New Hampshire that has Ron DeSantis leading Donald Trump in a hypothetical 2024 primary in the first primary state in the country, New Hampshire. And it's a survey of like 300-some-odd New Hampshire Republicans. And it's got DeSantis at 39%, Trump at 37 and then there's a big drop-off to Mike Pence, 9%, Nikki Haley, 6%, and a couple people at 1%. And I think a lot of people who are hardcore Trump people are nervous about this. They want no one but Trump, and they're like, well, I don't like this. Maybe it's fake news. What do you think of it? Then you've got a lot of people who aren't big Trump fans or just really like DeSantis who are thrilled and excited and saying, is this the start of the end of Trump and now we can move on and, you know, DeSantis is the guy and he's the man and all of that. So I wrote a piece about it today at townhall.com because I just wanted to put all my thoughts out in one place. Let me summarize my thoughts briefly here because I really feel like I don't need to devote too much more time to a single poll about a hypothetical race like a year and a half or two years from now, there's bigger fish to fry right in front of us in 2022. I understand the appeal. I understand the intrigue. I understand the interest. I do. Because in the same poll, University of New Hampshire, same poll last October, not that long ago, they asked the same question. It was Trump 43, DeSantis 18, and then everyone else in single digits. So DeSantis was clearly in second place by a long shot, but far behind Donald Trump. Trump was more than doubling up DeSantis just in October. Here's the new poll from the same survey series, and DeSantis has jumped into the lead over Trump, 39 to 37. So what does it mean? Okay. If you want to read deeply into this thing, if you're excited about this poll or you think that it should matter a lot, It is only the second poll I can remember at all that has anyone even close to Donald Trump in a Republican primary hypothetical poll. One was in Florida in February of this year where DeSantis was tied similarly, like a little tiny bit ahead of Trump. But that's in his home state of Florida, where Trump, of course, is also a resident. And here's one from another significant state. Florida is a significant state in the nominating process. New Hampshire obviously is. The trajectory in this survey is interesting. So this isn't just some 
convention that has a straw poll where DeSantis does well. We saw that in Colorado. We saw that in Wisconsin recently. People get all excited and spun up over that. These are actual scientific polls of voters. So that's something. Right? The trajectory is interesting. In the same poll, Biden, this is New Hampshire, Biden would beat Trump in 2024. This is all way too early, my goodness. But Biden is leading Trump, hypothetically right now in New Hampshire, by seven points. Basically unchanged from the 2020 margin. So think about how awful things are in the country right now and how terrible of a President Joe Biden is, going back to my earlier remarks here at the top of the show. Trump has gained nothing on Biden in New Hampshire, despite all of that. Whereas DeSantis, same poll, hypothetical, is slightly ahead of Biden in that blue state. DeSantis has the best favorability ratings among himself, Trump, Biden, and Harris. By the way, Biden and Harris, both worse than DeSantis or Trump. Dead last, Kamala Harris. She's at minus 42 favorability in New Hampshire. That's Kamala. So that's interesting, right? And I think that if people are looking for a few hooks to peg their hopes on for DeSantis to run and maybe have a chance at Trump, this type of poll is certainly interesting. However, on the flip side of this, it is June of 2022. They're going to be roughly a million news cycles between now and whenever this stuff will actually heat up. DeSantis is not just a flavor of a month, right? He's he's got some staying power based on his governance. He's been tested. He's been criticized, really on a national level. How he would perform as an actual presidential candidate, open question, very different thing. Sometimes really great governors or really appealing senators show up as presidential candidates, and they stink. They're just not good at it. We don't know what DeSantis would look like if he were to run. But he has been tested. He has, I think, gained the prominence because of the way he's governed, the decisions that he's made, the attacks that he's weathered and beaten. Now, he has to get reelected in Florida. That's the other thing. This is so early. If DeSantis overperforms in a major way in Florida and has an eye-opening, really impressive win, that helps the overall case if he's thinking about 2024. If he underperforms expectations, that would maybe be a blow to him. If somehow he were to lose in Florida, which I think is extremely unlikely this year, that would probably crush his his presidential aspirations. But again, this is just underscoring how early it is. Also, it's a tiny sample size of one poll in one state. Oh, and one more thought. Trump hasn't really gone after DeSantis yet, or vice versa. If they actually run against each other in a Republican primary down the line, you will see, I'd say, an explosion between these two former, at that point, allies. And the shots that Trump takes at DeSantis... And the counter punches or whatever from DeSantis, I don't know what that would look like. I don't know who would get the better of that. I don't know how Republican voters would respond to any of that. You look at what's happened recently in Georgia and other places, it's clear that Trump does not have the vice grip that he had at one point on the party in terms of control and influence, but he still is very influential. So all of this stuff is hypothetical right now, which is why... 
I almost feel like I've spent already too much time talking about it. The last thing I'll say is this. In fact, let me take a break. (laughs) So I'm going to contradict myself and spend one more segment on this, but it actually is more about the 2024 campaign in general, not so much DeSantis specifically, but there are rumors about a Trump announcement potentially as soon as next month that he's running again in 2024. A quick thought on that. When we come back, then we're getting to the Supreme Court and so much more on today's show. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm Guy Benson. Hold on. There's more. Just finishing up this thought on ludicrously early 2024 analysis. I'm going there just because, again, I just got inundated with stuff, people wanting to talk about it. So I'm guessing people want to hear about it. And the rumors are that the Trump people now hate DeSantis and he's persona non grata. He's not welcome at Mar-a-Lago at this point. And DeSantis might be gearing up for whatever he's got in mind post-2022. We'll see how that plays out between those two guys. Could be very interesting. But the Trump people are at least nervous enough about his ascendancy, the Florida governors, that they are at least debating, announcing as soon as this summer, maybe even July, that Trump is going to run for president again in 2024. It's not much of a secret that I hope he doesn't. I hope President Trump does not run again. That is my personal opinion. Some of you will agree. Some of you will disagree. Whatever it is, they're thinking about if he's going to run, I suspect he wants to, announcing soon because they kind of want to be out there first, start fundraising a huge amount of money, maybe establish a dominant position and freeze out the field, freeze people out from running because, like, the big dog's already in. Are you really going to challenge me? Now, there's... An argument for it, if he waits and waits and waits and there's other people in there, maybe the moment passes him by. I just think if you're Trump and you have the base that you've got of really hardcore, strong supporters who are always going to be with you, the more the merrier. The more crowded the field, the better that is for you because everyone else is slicing up the pie and you've got the biggest slice of that pie. So I'm not sure freezing the field is in his strategic interest. I guess we'll see one way or another. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. On this Thursday, thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. And joining us is Carrie Severino, who's president of the Judicial Crisis Network. She co-authored a book with Molly Hemingway about the Kavanaugh Confirmation Circus, Justice on Trial. She's also a former, former clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, 
whose birthday is today, and he's also the author of a big decision on the Second Amendment, a 6-3 to victory for supporters of gun rights. And, Carrie, it's great to have you back here. Thanks. It's so great to be here. And what a better day to celebrate, right? Yeah, a big birthday celebration for Justice Thomas taking the lead. All six conservative justices uh, in concurrence on this one, the three liberals dissenting. It's a case out of New York. Can you just explain to us what the basic facts were, what the ruling is, and why this matters? Yeah, so this had to do with a New York law that made it illegal First, you're, you're not allowed to open carry. And then they said you can only have a concealed carry a gun. You can have a gun at home, but you can only conceal carry it in a, a, a public area if you have a permit. And the permits were only granted to people who had a, a specific reason, like say you've got a stalker or you have some specific threat against you. Just an average person who obviously has, has done the requisite you know, firearms training and, and, and meets all the, the, the basic requirements, can't just get it. You need to be sort of a special person or just have your gun at home. And that was brought to the Supreme Court. It's really significant because, you know, apart from the Heller case, which decided the term I clerked uh, back in 2008, and the McDonald case, which applied that to the state, said the Second Amendment is an individual right, the court really hasn't addressed the Second Amendment in years. And so uh, the, the appeals courts have kind of gone, gone all over the place. This was a real course correction, and the Supreme Court said, First, you do have a right to carry a, a gun. You, it, right, to keep a bear arm means everyone has that right. The people, sh- people's rights shall not be infringed. And it, you have the right to bear arms. So it's not just you keep the gun at home or you can only take it out for hunting, but you actually have a right to, to carry the gun for self-defense. Um, and that is something that's going to change. You know, 43 states have laws that are completely consistent with this already. This is really only going to affect six states in the District of Columbia that have laws that give a ton. Just I think not we just lost Carrie. No, we just lost you there for a second, but I think we got the gist okay. of the point that you were making, Carrie. And I want to just have you respond to some of the criticisms and reactions that we're seeing. And let's just maybe stay away from the Twitter discourse, which is unusually terrible. I mean, I'm saying more terrible than usual on Twitter. And I can only imagine, given the meltdown happening on Twitter over the, for example, First Amendment case, the freedom of religion case on Tuesday, and now the guns case today, just building towards Dobbs and the abortion case, although maybe some of that tantrum had already took place with the leak. All that being said, we have heard from critics of the court, dissenters on the court, and, and other progressives in general, making a couple of points. Number one, this is a broader point about the Second Amendment, and it's exemplified in this case today by Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, making this point. Just listen to cut 31. Here's New York's governor. And I would like to point out to the Supreme Court justices that the only weapons at the time were muskets. I'm prepared to go back to muskets. I don't think they envision the high capacity assault weapon magazines intended for battlefields as being covered with it. But I guess we're just going to have to disagree. So first of all, Carrie, I would just note that the governor was speaking into a microphone uh, to did not exist back at the founding of the country and the adoption of the Constitution, the Constitutional Convention. That video, which also did not exist, was put onto the Internet through social media, none of which existed. I don't know if you could say that none of that has any 
any connection to the First Amendment? The government could just come in and ban all of it because the founding fathers could not have envisioned Twitter or envisioned microphones and cameras. But I don't think anyone would take that argument seriously about the First Amendment. But they make this argument a lot on the Second Amendment, uh, Second Amendment involving muskets, involving cannons, although Biden's point on that is factually wrong historically as well. What's your your rebuttal? What is the conservative constitutional rebuttal when we get the musket argument or the well-regulated militia argument saying, hey, the Second Amendment, they never meant anything like this? Yeah, even the militia point was what was addressed in Heller. Does this only count if you're a member of militia? No, it, it actually is an individual right. So the court has already addressed that. And they looked at what the history uh, said. We, we, we know that looking at the original meaning doesn't mean you can only do things that apply there. Otherwise, you know, the Constitution wouldn't apply to everything from cars to the Internet. You know, that obviously isn't the case. You look at, in this case, they said you have to look at what types of guns were in general used at the time. This is why you don't have a right to own a cannon either, because uh, people didn't have that general right uh, back at the in the founding, right? It was things that were, that were generally available. Um, so, Although I think, you know, I think so they could get... They could get cannons, actually, at the very (laughs) beginning. And Biden keeps making the point, and fact-checkers have to begrudgingly be like, actually, people did own cannons back then. They had cannons. Right. But, I mean, this is is the typical type of scaremongering that, again, you you pointed out, we saw this with the the, uh, freedom of religion opinion. We're going to see it again with Dobbs. They they make up a, a, a straw man, and then they try to knock down that straw man. That is not how the Constitution is interpreted. It doesn't mean you have a freedom of the press. It, including on the internet, you don't have to buy one of Ben Franklin's old, you know, hand crank, uh, movable type machines to actually have a freedom of the press. It applies, um, a, you know, as as a principle, not to just specific technologies that were available at the framing. Right, firearms in common use, and that very much has a a through line to today. So the muskets thing, I think, is just like. Really, really weak argumentation there, even though you hear it a lot. That's the governor of New York in response, and if that's what she's got, I think that's you know pretty feeble stuff. We also get this point, Carrie, which is sort of tying in what the justices have just decided today in this 6-3 decision and what they are widely expected to decide, 5-4 or sort of 6-3, depending on the breakdown, on abortion and Dobbs either tomorrow or next week. And the argument goes something like this. Isn't it interesting that these supposed champions of states' rights want to tell states they cannot regulate concealed carry of firearms when it comes to the Second Amendment? They they won't allow the states to make laws, uh, sort of autonomous statewide laws, based on what their constituents want in those places but on abortion they're going to say this cannot be a national regime we need to give this to the states and let the state and local officials you know pass legislation that's what they did on guns and then they overruled that isn't this hypocritical aren't they a bunch of hypocrites on states rights who are just selectively defending federalism and states rights when they want to, when it fits their political agenda, and then when it doesn't, they just abandon that whole pretense. I've seen a lot of that. I think we'll see more of that in the coming days. What's the response there? Yeah, I even saw Neil Cattell, formal acting, former acting solicitor general, make this argument. That would he should me know. Protect- he should know, yeah, shouldn't he? He should know because he because it's the question to do with what's actually in the constitution or not that the, the, these decisions aren't being made based on a I'm a pro states rights justice or I'm an anti states rights justice it's I am a justice that it believes 
that we should enforce what's in the Constitution and against the states and not enforce what's not in the Constitution. So the key difference is the the Second Amendment actually does protect a right to keep and bear arms. It's, it's in, right in there, in the black and white. Abortion, nowhere in the Constitution. If it's not in the Constitution, however wonderful you might think this is, the Constitution does not protect it. And so that is the key difference. It's not that hard, um, but it's but it, you're right. It's something that we have seen all over the place. Um, and I think we need to just remember their job is, is pretty simple. If it's in the Constitution, um, then then states can't you know violate that. But anything that's not, and the Constitution says it itself, if the Constitution doesn't speak to it, the states do retain those rights, and the people themselves retain the rights. It's an elementary point, you would think, but evidently one that will need to be made over and over again. We've seen uh, some rending of garments, gnashing of teeth, people really losing it uh, on social media already. And I think some of it is just sort of the buildup to Dobbs. Just curious, based on your understanding of the inner workings of the court, do you have a guess as to when Dobbs will come down? And people are saying, oh, look, they added this extra day tomorrow. It's a Friday. It's heading into a weekend. Could we get Dobbs tomorrow or would it be next week? When is the last day of the term? How many cases are outstanding to be ruled upon? As you put all of those factors into your brain and compute it, what is your best guess? Obviously, you don't know, but if you had to guess, what would that be? Yeah, if I had to guess, I would guess more likely than not, it's the last day of the term that's going to come out. Could it come out tomorrow? Absolutely. Big cases have come up, you know, the penultimate day as well. And uh, there's nine cases left. That's totally doable within two days. We've had four cases today, but earlier this week we had six cases uh, on a day. So it can, it can happen that you could get it done in two days. They could even add a day on Tuesday. Who knows? Um, but but I, I do think at this point they're in good shape where they could get it done by Monday or, you know, maybe, maybe with one additional day next week. Unfortunately, I think we've waited so long at this point, they're pro- probably going to take till the very last day. Um, so that means we're going to have to endure these uh, you know, the almost daily protests at the justices' houses, the threats, the escalating uh, violence and, and vulgarity of some of the hostile, hostile opposition uh, to the Dobbs ruling, not just the justices' house, but up to like firebombing, you know, pro-life pregnancy resource yep. centers, which is really shocking. Um, and I, I hope that the, we see some prosecutions on that coming soon because it's just it's such a shame. I, I'm looking forward to being past this. Yeah. Uh, this poll decision. Well, I would say I also am looking forward to some result in the leak investigation. I would love mm-hmm. to know what happened there. I'd like to know if there's been any progress. I think they're maybe holding that close to the vest until the term's over. I guess we'll see. But you mentioned prosecutions. We did read reports that the FBI was looking into these fire bombings and terrorist threats. We've covered that pretty extensively here on this show because so much of the media is not covering it at all. Speaker Pelosi was asked to condemn political violence against, you know, pro-life crisis pregnancy centers that are just trying to help women not choose abortion. And they're getting bombed and threatened. Pelosi would not even say a word in condemnation of this violence. The FBI is looking into it. Let's say they find some people. Let's say they make some arrests. The DOJ would have to do the prosecuting. The DOJ put out a statement today, Carrie, about the guns case, or at least seemingly in reaction to this decision authored by Justice Thomas today, the 6-3 majority ruling in favor of this right to constitutional concealed carry in all 50 states. And 
DOJ, of course helmed by Merrick Garland, the attorney general, said that they respectfully disagree with the court's decision. What does that mean? I mean, okay, like, cool, they can agree or disagree respectfully or not. It doesn't matter, right? In our system, disagreement, once the court has ruled what the Constitution says, what the law is, I mean, you can put out a statement. It's basically like a tweet or a journal entry. Oh, I'm disappointed. I disagree. That should have no bearing on their jobs, right? And if it does, I mean, they should be, someone like Garland should be immediately removed from office, uh, because that would be sort of a form of an insurrection, actually, if we want to just broadly apply that term. I don't know if that's what they meant by this or they were just signaling that this, you know, they're they're still on board with other gun laws. How did you interpret the DOJ statement today? Yeah, I thought it was a super weird tweet because they just say, like, first of all, this decision didn't have to do with federal law. It had to do with state law. Now, it did have to do with the District of Columbia, which was one of the seven jurisdictions. Most states, 43 states, have laws that are totally unaffected by this. Just six states plus D.C. So DOJ doesn't actually enforce those laws. So I hope they're not saying we're going to nullify the Supreme Court's decision by refusing you know, to let the, the, the D.C. government enforce those laws. And they didn't say that. That would be a real problem, right? And they, they <laughs> but, didn't say that, right? It was just a kind no, of this vague no, thing. Only- that's the only way that would even make sense to make this because it doesn't really affect them. So why are you saying, is this Merrick Garland just w- wishing he could have written a dissent in this case? In which case, I'm glad he's saying that from DOJ and not from the Supreme Court. Just more illustrations why he's, he, it's better to have him there than sitting on the Supreme Court bench. But it was, it was an unnecessarily just political inserting itself into the debate here for the Department of Justice, which should not be political. Kerry Severino, president of the Judicial Crisis Network, former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote the opinion today on guns. And there's a couple big ones. There's the Dobbs case still left, obviously, on abortion. Less drama and less anticipation than usual because of that leak, I think, unless something's changed. And there's no indication that that coalition has mm-hmm. changed. Any other really big ones? I know there's the uh, the prayer case, right, the high school football prayer case. Uh, mm-hmm. Any other big ones we should be keeping our eyes out for tomorrow and or early next week? Yeah, so there's that, as you mentioned, the Coach Kennedy case. There's a couple cases dealing with important um, kind of administrative and, and, and separation of powers issues. One has to do with the migrant protection uh, or the, the, the Remain in Mexico, sorry, uh, plan, policy and whether whether Biden can just you know stop stop. Uh, enforcing that. And then another one has to do with the Clean Power Plan, this is West Virginia, uh, suing to make sure that the government isn't able to uh, enact regulations that go way beyond what the actual laws um, it, it allow EPA to do. So those two are going to obviously be a drop in the bucket compared to abortion and guns, but they are really important for our second separation of powers and making sure that the government stays within its constitutional bounds. All right, Carrie Severino will be watching. I know you will as well. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Carrie, thank you so much. It is the Guy Benson Show. When we come back, a very interesting report about an alleged admission from one of the most high-profile public health officials in the world about how COVID, the coronavirus, got started. I'll give you a hint. It used to be called misinformation. We'll get to that next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Still to come on the Guy Benson Show today, Miranda Devine in the next hour, Andy McCarthy in our final hour. But first, this, 
from the UK Daily Mail headline, WHO chief, quote, believes COVID did leak from Wuhan lab after, quote, catastrophic accident in 2019, despite publicly maintaining all hypotheses remain on the table. The head of the World Health Organization privately believes the COVID pandemic started following a leak from a Chinese laboratory, according to a senior government source. This is in the UK. While publicly, the group maintains that all hypotheses are possible about where this whole pandemic started. The source says that Dr. Tedros, now the director general of WHO, recently confided in senior European officials, a politician specifically, that the most likely explanation was a catastrophic accident at a laboratory in Wuhan, where infections first spread during late 2019. Huh. Oh, really? Imagine that. I wonder if Tedros will say this out loud in public in front of microphones and cameras. Not sure, because he was infamously handpicked, handpicked rather, hand-selected by the CCP, by the regime in Beijing, to be in this position at WHO. And they did a lot of covering up and colluding with the Chinese in those early days. The Chinese insist that is absolutely not true, that there was any sort of lab, lab leak or lab accident But it looks like the evidence increasingly points in that direction, and reportedly the WHO leader is even willing to whisper that that's probably the case. That used to be misinformation. You couldn't talk about it. I guess now we can. Yeah. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, podcast free every day. And a Fox News alert as we begin our middle out of three hours. The Dow ending on a high note today, finishing in the green up 194 points, closing at 30,677. Now on the program, we welcome back Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, author of the book Laptop from Hell. Miranda, good to have you back. Great to be with you, Guy. You have a new piece at the Post about the mainstream media and this phenomenon of secret flights where illegal immigrants are flown all across the country to various places, often in the dark of night. What can you tell us about your piece? What do you think people need to know, and why have you written it? Well, look, I wrote it because uh, NPR on Monday just ran the most dishonest, shoddy story, uh, basically um, saying that all our reporting on the secret flights, which we've been doing since October, you know, going out to white planes, watching these planes arrive, because we got a tip-off following the buses that take the illegal migrants to their destinations. Uh, We had a crew in Jacksonville where some of these flights uh, stop off on the way to New York. Um, And so we've done reporting for several months. And this lazy, shoddy piece of journalism just poo-poos 
all our work, discredits our reporting, says, you know, just basically takes the Biden administration's word for it and says, oh, you know, there's nothing really unusual about this surge in illegal migration and all that's happening. Oh, and come it just on. happened during the Trump administration. Yeah, they're just flying little kids around the country to be reunited with their family. It's a good news story. I mean, I don't understand how anyone can look at the current border crisis and say there's nothing unusual about this. It is highly unusual. They are shattering records month after month after month, and it's getting worse. I don't know how any journalist worth his or her salt can, with a straight face, report that it's just like, oh, nothing to see here. It's all just, you know, a typical government at work. I, that is not the case. Yes, and look, it's not just NPR. It's all of them. They either ignore the crisis or they downplay it. There was this... A- absurd story in the New York Times where they interviewed their own reporter, who's the border reporter, right, who'd gone down to the border. They had a photograph accompanying it showing, you know, women, families. Most of these people are young men. They are um, working age men. They are coming in to basically take jobs from Americans at very low wages. They're slave labour. And It's obvious. You just have to look at them. And yet we are gaslit and lied to constantly. And the New York Times interviews their own person and says, who's down at the border, says, oh, there's, you know, I didn't notice much chaos here. Well, you know, there's the size (laughs) of Buffalo worth of people, 240,000 people came across the border illegally in May. That is the size of Buffalo or Toledo, right? This is enormous. It's going to have huge ramifications on this country for decades to come. And the New York Times says, oh, nothing to see here. Well, there's no chaos at the border because as soon as these people arrive, they get put on buses and planes and shipped off to the rest of the country. It is a conveyor belt. It is an, it, they're very efficient at it. I'll give them that. The Biden administration, their logistics on moving migrants away from the border secretly in this clandestine, very expensive operation with multiple charter flights, with multiple charter airlines, is very efficient. You know, I would like for that New York Times reporter maybe to spend a few nights with the men and women of Border Patrol and the Texas Department of Public Safety because you absolutely see quite a lot of chaos. I don't know if they remember when the Texas National Guardsmen drowned in the Rio Grande trying to save what turned out to be alleged drug smugglers, the huge crush of people who cross at various border locations multiple times a day, constantly, the number of people who are convicted felons getting caught, and God knows how many getting away. There were 50,000-plus gotaways that we know of last month alone. To, to pretend like this is all normal and not that chaotic is to deliberately close your eyes to a problem. And it really infuriates me, honestly, because they don't want to cover the reality because it's bad for their political team. I know that seems very cynical and blunt to say, but I believe that it's true. And they are willing to lie and call others liars simply for pointing out what actually is happening on a daily basis. And to your point, Miranda, and you're reporting on these secret flights and it's, it's buses, it's, it's a lot of other modes of transportation as well. When I was down there at the border meeting with these officials, they were expressing deep frustration 
that the U.S. federal government under President Biden has basically become the final leg of the human trafficking journey for the cartels. In the past, the cartels would have to do a little bit more work to get these people from the border to a city of their choosing in America. Now we, the American taxpayers, are doing that for the cartels. Absolutely. That, that is, that, that's the nub of it, really. It's that the Biden administration is encouraging and assisting this really vile, evil people smuggling operation by the cartels, which preys upon the poorest people in the world. It offers them this promise that they can come into America and make a new life for themselves. And no one uh, you know, criticizes those people. I would do the same thing if I was in the same position. My ancestors did it. Um, but you have to do it legally. And this crush of people that are being smuggled into unsuspecting communities in the middle of the night is disastrous. Um, you know, we've seen in New York where these planes arrive and the migrants are put on these charter buses and then they they come into New York to, you know, Yonkers and the Bronx and they get dispatched into affordable housing. Now, this is affordable housing that is supposed to be for New Yorkers who are homeless or who struggle to pay the rent. So we've got a homelessness crisis. And at the same time, we're giving affordable housing to non-citizens who've arrived illegally. And we're assisting them with food stamps and everything else. I mean, obviously, you don't want these people to starve, but they shouldn't be encouraged to make the journey in the first place. And that's what's happening. The sugar is on the table. Joe Biden has lured these people. It's the siren call of open borders. He's made them leave their communities, use their life savings, scrabble together money with friends and family to send one member of the family across the border, make this very dangerous journey, become, uh, you know, preyed upon by these people smugglers, these cartels, and then when they arrive, they are the anchors and they can bring the rest of the family across. That's the mentality, and it is just cruel. So many of these people die on the way. Uh, They're sex trafficked, they're raped, the kids are abused. It's just an awful situation, and Joe Biden poses as Mr. Compassion. And I think the problem with the media ignoring it means that half the country doesn't even know what's going on. And it's just like with the Hunter Biden laptop, when that section of the media, the left-wing media, Democrat-supporting media, refused to report on it or poo-pooed it. That's what they're doing with our reporting on the border. And it's uh, just a dereliction of duty. It, It really shows that the media is just a propaganda arm for the Biden regime. It's... I think an important point worth stating over and over again, that when they wrap themselves in the flag of compassion, it is impossible to categorize this policy and its outcomes and its ramifications as compassionate. It is anti-compassionate. It is inhumane. It is dangerous. It makes a mockery of our national sovereignty. And yet it is what they continue to do 
month in and month out, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and they lie and they say the border's under operational control. Look elsewhere. I mean, the bad news for them is people are looking elsewhere because there are a bunch of other crises playing out as well. But this one is not going to be ignored by you, and it's not going to be ignored by us, and I think it's not going to be ignored by a lot of voters in November either. Miranda Devine of the New York Post and a Fox News contributor. Miranda, thank you as always. Thanks so much, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. When we come back, you know what? How about some woke tales? I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. It's time for woke tales. This story comes to us from New York City, where loose bail laws have become an absolute farce. A shoplifter, 34-year-old guy, who has been arrested 122 times for stealing, shoplifting, looting. This guy just goes and takes stuff that doesn't belong to him on the regular. 122 busts under his belt, per the New York Post, was once again released on his own recognizance. Basically, you come on in, you get booked, and out you go, back out the door. Because that's what the law requires. Even Alvin Bragg, who is the left-wing DA, who often defends this madness, even his office is saying, this seems to be a bit too much. But our hands are tied by the law. What a disastrous law. Criminals get a very clear message, which is keep doing crimes. We can't really do anything and actually won't do anything to you because we can't and we don't want to because we're progressives and equity matters. So go reoffend. Go find some new victims. Go find some new stuff to steal. And we'll see you again here. It's like our standing date back at the old precinct. And we'll book you and send you back out and on and on it goes, this merry-go-round of crime. And this is wokeness on parade when woke people get put in charge of making and enforcing the law. This is what you get. Whether it's in New York City, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. The people of San Francisco finally had enough. And they successfully and lopsidedly recalled Chesa Boudin out there. Let's hope that's the beginning of a pattern of a law and order revolt in these blue cities run by woke, hyper-blue Democrats. Now, speaking of San Francisco, when Boudin got the boot from voters and he blamed right-wingers and billionaires, which is just, you know, a chef's kiss of lunacy, very on-brand for him, his recall was not the first one that raised eyebrows in that very quote-unquote, progressive city. We had covered the story weeks prior of three school board members on that mess of a school board getting thrown out of office, even more overwhelmingly than Boudin did. I mean, it wasn't even close. They got the heave-ho from voters. They'd been doing all this nutty stuff, renaming a bunch of schools while keeping the schools closed, 
harming a bunch of children. They had a bunch of woke projects that they were just ticking down the list while kids were suffering, schools were closed, and parents, especially parents of color, finally said, we have had enough of these people, and they're out. And wouldn't you know it, the school board that has faced voter-mandated upheaval is now changing its conduct, changing its tune, revisiting some of their crackpot decisions. It's almost like reverse woke tales happening in San Francisco. Dare we dream? In fact, let's do the reverse jingle. All right. That's actually funny. Reverse woke tales underway in San Francisco. The school board just voted yesterday by a four to three margin. So it sounds like there might be still some people worth recalling on that school board. But on a four to three vote, they rescinded their previous decision to require a mural of George Washington be covered up on a campus in the city. It was a painting, a mural from the 1930s that some critics called racist, of course, because they call everything racist. So the school board is like, oh, yes, we must cover up this mural of George Washington because it's degrading in its depiction of black and Native American people. And this was one of the examples of just going way too far constantly and this this weaponized political correctness run amok people finding every possible thing to be offended by and this was a step back from that brink by the school board in san francisco and they weren't done same school board voted by the same margin four to three that they were going to restore lowell high school to a merit-based admissions system we covered this here We talked about it multiple times. Two years ago, during the pandemic, these clowns had voted to ruin one of the best and most prestigious schools in the state, even in the country, which for years had relied on a merit-based admission system to this magnet or charter school, whatever they call it. And this was an opportunity for very smart kids, especially from underprivileged households, to test and earn their way into a really good school. But that was not good in the eyes of these woke people. It was not equitable enough. The racial distribution of the students was not what they wanted it to be. And therefore, they had to uproot the whole system. It was just too unfair to rely on merit. So they said, nope, we're scrapping that. It'll be a lottery now, just sort of random. And the whole cachet, the whole strength of the school was sapped and gutted in one fell swoop. That's what they did in the name of equity, driving down merit, trampling on that as even a worthwhile goal or a worthwhile measuring stick because they're saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's about race and other things. Just a race to the bottom is what it is. And just an attack on excellence, an attack on achievement, an attack on talent, all in the name of this cosmic sense of fairness and racial equity. It was a very unpopular move with people who are invested in that school's continued success. It was a massive local controversy. It garnered national attention, including on this show. Unfortunately, some other schools have followed suit in New York, in Northern Virginia, and elsewhere. But 
by that 4-3 vote, same breakdown, I believe, of the exact same people, and I think those three dissenters should have to answer for it, but a 4-3 vote, the SF school board decided to back away from this huge mistake and return to the previous admission standards. Two significant changes at the local level, of course, but in a very blue progressive place after hyper-wokeness was punished by voters that is just giving me that combination. Those two data points are giving me a little glimmer and ray of hope. Perhaps, again, some of the tide is turning. A lot more of it needs to turn in this country. But we will welcome and celebrate even baby steps especially if they emerge from a place like San Francisco. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We are emerging from halftime here on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Thanks for being here. I wrote about this earlier at townhall.com. Our radio website is guybensonshow.com. Everything to do with this program, including the free podcast. I also write every day political analysis for townhall.com. And so I published this this morning, another day, another horrendous poll for Joe Biden. And the latest installment in this long series of bad news for the Democratic Party and this White House comes from Quinnipiac, that pollster. I guess the little silver lining for Biden is that he didn't drop lower. He didn't set a new low record in the poll, but he tied it. And it's just dreadful to begin with. He's at 33 percent approval among all American adults, 57 percent disapprove in this poll. Registered voters, 35% approve, 58% disapprove. So he is very, very deep underwater in Quinnipiac. Now, one thing that they asked in this particular survey that I found interesting and especially relevant, given the spin from the White House over these last couple of weeks that we spent a fair amount of energy rebutting and debunking here, is the overall question, the overall proposition of how much a president or an administration has power over a phenomenon like inflation. All right, because Team Biden says, well, it's Putin, it's the oil companies, it's the Republicans, it's the pandemic. They've got every excuse in the book. And Biden's lying about how inflation is worse everywhere else except for here. Not true. Worse everywhere in the G7. The advanced world except the United States also falls, not even close. And so they're blame casting, they're blame storming. And the premise of the blaming is hey, look, don't blame us. It's out of our control. We don't really have an ability to change this or alter this trajectory because these factors are beyond our grasp. Now, we've made the point, trying to be honest. That to an extent, that is true. No president, no administration has full control over this stuff. Whether it's gas prices or inflation, some things truly are global phenomena that no one can really fix. Certainly not in short order. Fair enough. 
But that's only part of the equation. There are other policies that have been pursued over the warnings of experts, over the warnings even of Democratic economists like Larry Summers and others, like the so-called rescue plan on COVID, $2 trillion nearly in even more so-called emergency spending, this time only on a partisan basis, a lot of which had nothing to do with the pandemic at all, which is why now they're also saying, oh, we're running out of money on core government functions involving COVID. We've also addressed that insulting talking point here. But they have engaged in terrible, counterproductive, ideological, inflationary policies and spending. And they've completely ignored the voices, even within their own coalition, saying, let's not do this. This is dangerous. This is going to lead to inflation. They said never mind until they couldn't never mind it anymore. It was that bad. Now they're hoping that can just be wiped from the record, has nothing to do with anything. Let's also forget that they tried to spend $5 trillion more dollars on top of it, build back better. Every single House Democrat voted for that, except for one up in Maine. So there were hundreds of House Democrats, all of them except for one, voted yes on Build Back Better, $5 trillion new dollars in spending. When you hear these Democrats out on the campaign trail this summer and this fall talking about inflation and wringing their hands and saying, oh, we feel your pain and we're trying to bring down prices and scapegoating greedy corporations or whatever talking point they're going to try to use, and it'll vary district by district. Just remember, as a voter, that every single one of these people voted for $5 trillion more trillion just a couple months ago. $5 trillion in new spending on top of the bloated disaster that we already have, fueling inflation. That would have been, I'm calling it, an inflationary bomb dropped on the economy, and we would be in much worse shape. That is on their voting record. It's not something that they hypothetically would have done. They all voted to pass that bill. So they have no credibility on any of this. Just like Biden and team have no credibility when they try to say, oh, well, it's everyone else, just not us. So back to the Quinnipiac poll, the question was, how much control does a president have over inflation? So President Putin's price hike gets some bad news, even more bad news in this survey. 69% of all adults think that a president has some or a lot of control over inflation. Only 31% believe a president has little or none at all. I would probably say a president has some control. But roughly 7 out of 10 Americans believe that this president bears at least some, if not a lot, of responsibility for this. And the finger pointing at everyone else, that whole act is being bought by about 31% of the public, i.e. the Democratic base. Overall, Quinnipiac finds the president 30 points underwater on the issue of the economy broadly, his handling of the economy. He's 30 points upside down on the number one issue for American voters. So, unsurprisingly, it's ugly out there for the party in power, the ruling party, the Democrats. This from Newsweek, looking at new numbers from Gallup. Quote, President Joe Biden and the Democrats are facing the most difficult midterm election in 48 years, according to new polling from Gallup. It shows that Americans' dissatisfaction with the state of the United States 
is at the worst level it has been in any midterm election year since 1974. That was the Nixon resignation post-Watergate year. 87% of Americans are dissatisfied with the direction of the country. 87% wrong track in this Gallup poll. No wonder they're saying it's the worst environment in nearly 50 years. What was Biden entering his seventh term as a U.S. senator 48 years ago? Something like that. 87% of the American people dissatisfied with the direction of the country. And the Democrats have the White House. They have the Senate. They have the House of Representatives. So when people are mad, often they say, you know what, let's make a change. And that change this fall is going to involve a lot of people with the letter R next to their name just to come in here and put a stop to some of this stuff. All that being said, here's the but. Here's the however. I am worried that Republicans and conservatives are just assuming because things are so bad for the Democrats and Biden's numbers are so bad that they're just going to waltz into sweeping majorities. They're just going to win a bunch of these races, almost no effort required, throw anyone, put a ham sandwich up there with a Republican label, ham sandwich gets elected to the U.S. Senate or whatever. That may not be the case because candidates and issues still matter. And it's not just a generic Republican against a generic Democrat or a generic Republican running effectively against Joe Biden. There's a new high-quality poll out of Pennsylvania, which was run by President Trump's top pollster and President Biden's top pollster. So these are credible people, bipartisan poll, Pennsylvania. Now, if you're a Republican, you would look at a few of these data points and say, hey, we're golden. In Pennsylvania, in this survey, Joe Biden's approval rating is 36%, 61% disapprove. 61% disapprove in Pennsylvania. On the generic congressional ballot, Republicans lead 47-45, and I bet a lot of the undecideds there are Biden disapprovers. So that's a good number for the Republicans. However, same poll, same sample. In the Senate race, the Democrat, this sort of left-winger, Fetterman, is leading Dr. Oz by six points. In the governor race, the Democrat's up by three points. Fetterman's at 50, the Democrat in the governor race, Shapiro's at 49. Dr. Oz has worse favorability ratings than Joe Biden has approval ratings, which, needless to say, is low. And the two Democrats are right side up on favorability. So you've got a lot of people in Pennsylvania who cannot stand what Joe Biden is doing, who want to vote for Republicans in theory, And then they are being given choices of actual people, and at least for now, they're picking the Democrats. Which means that just because there's a great national environment for the Republicans, or even a great statewide environment in this swing state for the Republicans, that automatically the red wave just happens. No. The red wave must require Republicans turning out in force, like they did, for example, in Virginia last year. Independent swing voters turning out lopsidedly for the Republicans and to make it a huge wave, depressed turnout among Democrats. And again, there are some indications that that could be the case. Looking at 
at least so far in primary elections, Republicans are turning out in much higher numbers. Democratic turnout is down in many cases. So that's an indicator that's good for the Republicans. The fact that you have groups that are historically very favorable for the Democrats, young people, black Americans, who are not happy at all with Biden and just seem disaffected and demoralized, that could also portend very dark things for the Democrats. My point is, this thing isn't over. It's not like a big red bow has been tied atop this parcel, this gift to the Republicans, and that it's done. It's not a done deal at all. Now, in Pennsylvania, looking at these numbers with the Democrats ahead, they did not really have terribly bruising primaries, especially towards the end, whereas the Republicans did. So there are probably still some hard feelings and some bitterness. Dr. Oz, his favorability ratings were really tanked during the primary. A lot of Republicans don't have a good view of him. I think a lot more Republicans are going to start to, quote, unquote, come home in the months to come. I think these races are going to tighten. I think that they are winnable for the Republicans, but at this moment right now, if the election were held next Tuesday, it looks like the Republicans would lose Pennsylvania. You lose that Senate seat in Pennsylvania, that's Pat Toomey's seat right now. Now you have to make up that law seat somewhere else if you're going to have a shot at winning the Senate back, right? All of these races are critical in the Senate because it's 50-50. And even if the Democrats are deeply off-putting to the American people, if the Republicans are nominating folks that people don't like or can't take seriously or think are sort of kooks or dangerous or whatever, there are blowable races, and they can blow them. Which is why I think when the Democrats are spending money boosting cranks in places like Colorado and elsewhere, Republican voters should think about that very closely. Do we want to go with someone that the Democrats are salivating to run against? Maybe their only chance of winning in an environment like this. Do we want to put someone who is absolute damaged goods with tons of baggage, like Eric Greitens in Missouri, for example, and maybe make that state somehow competitive? A huge gift to the Democrats. Republican voters need to be smarter and strategic. That's how politics works. The Democrats generally are pretty good at it. The Republicans need to get good at it. Now, there are a few more pieces, some crumbs along the path here that are good news for Republicans and conservatives. I want to conclude this monologue on that note next. So stay tuned for that. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Benson Show talking hardcore politics here as I'm looking at some of the polling and casting my eyes forward to November. Now, here's a little bit more good news for the GOP. Amy Walter, who's a very sharp political analyst. In fact, we should get her back on the show. Amy looked at the numbers out of Pennsylvania and some of these other races. Wisconsin also, Ron Johnson trailing in a couple of polls. And here's what she wrote yesterday. The good news for Senate Democrats is that they're outpacing Biden numbers in their states. However, the GOP has only just begun the campaign to link them to Biden. It's like a cyclist in a breakaway. Once the peloton, sort of the pack of cyclists, starts to pick up their pace and chase, that lone biker gets caught. 
Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics responded to that. He said, we saw the exact same story play out in 2014 and 2018, where it looked like, oh, there were some people going against the grain, against the tide, looking like they might survive relatively early in the cycle, and then the fundamentals of the cycle just swamped the whole thing eventually. That was true, certainly in 2014. 2018, it was more of a mixed bag. Because remember, even though the Democrats gained, what, 40 House seats in a blue wave year 2018, because of a few factors in the Senate, the Republicans actually gained a couple seats in 2018, even in a blue wave year. And those gains helped pave the way for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So these things really do matter. These elections have consequences. And just because overall it looks like the country is moving one direction, it doesn't guarantee anything state by state, race by race, especially in the United States Senate where the stakes in every seat are so high. So that is just a cautionary tale that I wanted to point out to all of you. I also think in Pennsylvania, for example, the Daily Caller has a piece today. Voters are going to hear more about this. John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee against Dr. Oz, quote, has a history of using his office to recommend pardons for convicted murderers and has backed the idea of reducing the state's prison population en masse. Fetterman saying that he wanted to get as many people out of prison as possible to release on a broad scale, prison inmates, saying that he is, quote, trying to get as many folks out as we can, end quote. With law and order and crime a big issue, that's going to come up. I'm not throwing in the towel on any race here. I'm just saying don't count a bunch of chickens and assume just because Joe Biden's numbers are terrible, all the dominoes are just going to fall automatically. That's not how it works. Although... If this political climate, the electoral climate for Democrats, deteriorates further, I mean, you could even have deeply flawed candidates on the Republican side winning and decent Democrats who are putting up a very well-funded fight go down anyway. With Jay Powell saying it doesn't look like inflation is slowing, more people saying a recession could be coming, you throw that into the mix, if the gloom gets worse, you know, all bets are off. And there could be almost nothing to save the Democrats. But we're not there yet, apparently, evidenced by some of these polls that we're talking about. So just a friendly warning and a friendly reminder from yours truly about what's at stake, what it's going to take, and not resting on laurels, getting complacent, and assuming everything's going to be great. That doesn't happen by default. It happens through work, action, turnout and making smart choices that's what the gop needs to do to maximize their potential in november final hour of the guy benson show coming up next andy mccarthy is here on the supreme court on the january 6th committee and more straight ahead It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
Thursday happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. We appreciate it. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 5 to 6 is the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. TheLongDrink.com for more information, including where they are sold near you. They are growing big time. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is there, major interviews, all sorts of goodies. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day on demand. You can also follow us on social, at GuyBensonShow, on Twitter and on Instagram. And with us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of Ball of Collusion, one of several books that he's written. And Andy, it's always good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, great to be with you. Before we get started on more serious matters, I just have to ask you, I did see a short video clip of your son hitting a home run that I guess you were able to capture on your phone. Give us the play-by-play. This is a big moment. Yeah, first pitch, um, sitting on a fastball, dead red, got one middle in, and didn't miss it. And what level of competition was this at? Because it was a pretty significant blast. It looked like well over 300 feet. Yeah, well, so he uh, he plays, uh, you know, college baseball, uh, D3 level. So it's good competition. And they, they have these summer leagues guy, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get guys from, you know, D1, D2, D3, and they're kind of working it out during the summer, getting their reps in so they're ready when they go back to school for the grind. So it's a good league for him because it's, uh, you know, it's very good competition. He probably gets to see some pitching that's better than he sees um, uh, in college, although it's a mixed, uh, it's a mixed bag. So it was great. It was a lot of fun. Did I hear a wooden bat connect there or did I miss here? Yeah, no, I did. They're, uh, I think they have to use wooden bats in this, um, in this league, which is not, I think they use my recollection now. I, I should know this because I go to so many of the games, but I think they're allowed to use composite bats in the end. But not aluminum. Games, but in the, in the training, no. Right. And in the training league, unless they've degraded the aluminum, but I think they're composite, they call them. And in the training league, they use wood. Cool. And so I was an, very so impressed. It's an, honest, it's an honest 300 feet. Yeah, no, no, for sure. <laughs> I, I was impressed not only that he hit a home run, something I absolutely could not do under any circumstances, but also that you, as the proud father, kept a very steady hand, and I did not even hear a woo from you from behind the camera. You were really focused on capturing the moment. Did you then stop the recording and applaud? Um, I I was probably too excited to applaud, and then I had to go in search of the ball. Um, (laughs) Good point. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, but I was very proud of him for, uh, especially for the fact that uh, you know he didn't do the ESPN look at me routine. He just ran around the bases like you're supposed to, like he'd done it a million times. So that was my favorite part of it. Yeah, it was a normal, no frills home run trot. I would say. Yep. And absolutely. exceptional discipline from you, keeping the camera on him the whole time, very steady. Maybe a backup career, Andy, if the whole lawyering and punditing thing doesn't really work out. But it is working out, and let's turn to that right now, Andy. Let's first begin with the Supreme Court. We talked to Kerry Severino a bit about these issues earlier, but a couple big decisions handed down in the last couple of days, one on religious liberty, a school issue up in Maine, and then today the Second Amendment case, guns and New York State. 
Just give us your brief summary on what you think the court did and if they got it right in those cases. Guy, I think I could take them together because I think that's the most important uh, aspect of this, which is that um, this is especially misunderstood with the Second Amendment, but I think with a lot of the Bill of Rights in general, people think that uh, because of the way we commonly talk about it, that the Constitution gives us these rights. And in fact, what, for example, what the Constitution does with, um, well, what it does with both uh, right to keep and bear arms and right to uh, uh, free exercise of religion is that it, it takes a right that pre-existed the Constitution, acknowledges it, and it's not a positive grant of a right to us. It's a negative restriction on government's capacity to restrict it. That is what the original understanding of the Constitution was. So, you know, in our dialogue or in, in our public discourse, I think we often, uh, because of the way this is, uh, this is portrayed, we get the idea that these rights come from the Constitution and, and the government is quasi the guarantor of them. And, you know, the presumption is that they can be restricted and that the uh, government has the, uh, the power to do that and the, the uh, prerogative to do that. And in point of fact, the way the Constitution was originally understood is that these were rights, the, for, the right, for example, to keep and bear arms is something that the Constitution acknowledges pre-existed the Constitution and stems from natural law, your right, right natural rights. And the, the restriction in the Constitution is on the government's ability to limit it, as long as what we're talking about is within the ambit of what the right to keep and bear arms was understood to be at the end of the 18th century, which is weapons that are in common use. And so it sounds like from that analysis that you believe the court got it right in each of these cases, six to three in favor of the First and Second Amendments. And we've seen a lot of gnashing of teeth on the other side, people saying this is the court crushing the separation of church and state in Maine by allowing these families to use school vouchers because there aren't public schools in the communities. They're allowed to use taxpayer dollars to then go pay for tuition for private schools, but up till now, not religious schools, the state had said. Supreme Court says, well, you can't do that. That's discrimination against religious organizations, free exercise. That's unconstitutional. The dollars have to be able to flow that direction if that's what the parents want. And we're hearing howls from the left about the separation of church and state there. And then in the New York firearms case, it's a concealed carry issue. The left is saying this is just an invented new demand by the Supreme Court. What's your reply when you hear those complaints from people who are critical of these decisions? Well, they're making up stuff that's not in the Constitution. For example, uh, you know, the separation of church and state is I don't want to call it a slogan. I, you know, I know there's been a lot of that uh, word applied to it, and it, it, it is a phrase that has pedigree, but it's not in the Constitution, Guy. Right. What the Constitution says is that uh, you have a right to uh, basically to conscience, uh, you know, religious-based and free exercise of religion, and the government is forbidden from restricting that. And the prohibition in the Constitution is on establishing a national religion or a national church. So, you know, first of all, the parents who get to, to uh, benefit from this program, they're taxpayers too. 
You know, it's not like we're taking taxpayer money. You know, the, the parents are taxpayers, and what the what happens in this program is if you didn't allow them to take advantage of a public of a benefit of of the law, they would be being discriminated against because of their religious beliefs, which is what the First Amendment prohibits, and allowing them to take advantage of it hardly establishes a state church in Maine. So Not even close. You know, it's mean, like laughable the, to me that they're right, making that and argument. The thing is, and, you know, Justice Scalia said in, in the Heller case, Guy, and I think this is, this is really worth pondering, you know, he, he noted that, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the Second Amendment, including the idea of, uh, you know, the idea that weapons in common use meant something um, different in uh, the end of the 18th century than it does now in terms of, you know, in the 18th century, it was expected the militia would form up and they could actually, you know, be a uh, an effective fighting force. Whereas today, if you have weapons in common use, that would not be much of a check for the citizenry on the government because you couldn't stand up to a modern American armed forces. But the fact of the matter is the Second Amendment was originally conceived as a check for the public on abusive, tyrannical government, because the first thing a, ty- a tyrant does when he comes in is disarm the public and, and set up a standing army. And that was, that was how it was thought of uh, in the, uh, at the end of the 18th century. And, and what Scalia said is, you know, look, um, we could change the Second Amendment. We could repeal it, you know, so that it would be entirely gone. Or we can say, since it's supposed to reflect um, a, a uh, check for the citizenry on the power of government, we could allow people to have weapons that are beyond what's in common use. We could do all kinds of things, but we would have to amend the Constitution to do that. The court's job is to read the Constitution that we have and apply it as it was originally understood when these provisions were adopted, and that's all it's done today. Andy, we did not get the Dobbs case on abortion today. The court has added a decision day tomorrow, Friday, Some people are wondering, could we get Dobbs tomorrow? Other people saying, nope, it's going to be probably the very last day of the term, maybe next week. Where's your money on that parlor game? Yeah, well, I've I've already been wrong once today, Guy, because I really thought when they added that extra decision day that you said this week, uh, what they were going to do is decide six on each of the three decision days this week, and that would be the end of the term. They would just basically get out of uh, get out of Dodge. Uh, I, I today we only got four. That means they have about nine left. I think that's too much to do in one day. I'd be surprised if it comes tomorrow. But I do continue to think Dobbs will be in the last batch. So whether the last day is tomorrow, which I doubt, or early next week, I think that's when we get it. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Meanwhile, changing subjects, Andy, to the January 6th hearings in this committee. You've been watching it all very closely. You've written a few different pieces about it. One was sort of praising Liz Cheney and the platform that she's used and the effect to which she has used that perch on the committee. And I'm sure you rankled some conservatives with that piece. You've also written analyses saying that the committee has overpromised and underdelivered and that it has fatal flaws. Quickly, if you would, walk us through that sort of hodgepodge of arguments as you watch these proceedings? Well, on the Liz Cheney thing, Guy, I guess I should start out by saying my, you know, my default position is that this committee is not a real committee. It's, it's breaking uh, every norm 
uh, known to history in terms of the way it was composed. Uh, it's made a mockery out of due process. It doesn't although, allow cross-examination. Although, just to jump in and to play devil's advocate, and I actually agree with what I'm about to say to a certain extent on the merits as well, there have been some critics on the right, including reportedly Trump himself, who think it was a big mistake for Kevin McCarthy to pull all of his picks off the committee after Pelosi vetoed two of them. He could have negotiated two other people and the committee could have been more balanced. Instead, he ceded the entire playing field to Pelosi after Republicans had already rejected a bipartisan commission. And so this is how it ended up, not totally by dint of the Democrats' choices, but by some of the choices Republicans made, too, leading up to this. I, I, think, I think that's fair. Yeah, well, I, I said that at the time, Guy. What my criticism of Trump is the time to say this was at the time. You know, McCarthy could have used that kind of help at the time. So, you know, I think that when he would not – when Pelosi would not seat his chosen members, he had two ways to go. Either you say, all right, well, fine, if you're breaking that norm, we're going to treat this committee like it's illegitimate uh, and try to, uh, to set that impression in the public mind – the other way to go would be this is a committee that's going to have subpoena power and a high profile and the support of the court and the media. So even if we don't like it, we're better off having people on it who are at least McCarthy's people and who can push back against some of the things that are going on in the way of excess on the committee. He opted to go with Plan A. And mm-hmm. my understanding, I, people like me were saying that was a mistake. It was President Trump who seemed to be you know, cheering him. And now when the thing is kind of blown up on him in a way, in the sense that um, I think the hope was that people would completely ignore this thing. And so now Trump wishes that things had gone differently, but he's just sort of flipping based on his immediate perceived interests, which have shifted in his mind. So part of that is on him and on the Republicans. But that being said, to let you finish your point about Cheney and then the fatal flaws and under delivering Andy, in your view. Yeah, well, I think I think with respect to Liz Cheney that she was banking on she and the committee Democrats both want to keep Trump front and center, but they want it for different reasons. The committee Democrats want to run against Trump. They want to use Trump to deflect from attention from Biden and his woeful presidency. I think Liz, what she wanted to do was have Trump be front and center for the purposes of demonstrating in a powerful way over a few days in June that he's unfit for the presidency. And I didn't think she'd get very far with that, but I think you know she's taken the profile she has and she's done the most she can do with it with all its limitations, which are substantial. Meanwhile, you've made this point. You think that they set expectations too high and that ultimately they're contending with some flaws that in your mind are fatal. Just quickly your thoughts on those runs. Yeah, her theory, that the, the committee's theory, is that this is a multi-pronged, elaborate conspiracy by Trump, which, you know, that I think is defied by what we know about Trump historically. It, that would require a kind of discipline that, um, that I don't think uh, is there. But also, they don't have to prove that. If the idea is that you're trying to show that he's unfit or even that you're trying to show that he may have committed felony obstruction of, of Congress – you don't need to have an elaborate conspiracy to prove that. But I think, you know, talking to a lot of people, Guy, they think that you do have to show that because the committee is promising them that that's what they got. Andy McCarthy is a Fox News contributor. He was a federal prosecutor for years. He's a best-selling author, most recently 
of Ball of Collusion at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Is the home run trot video going to make it onto your Twitter feed, Andy? Or is that just for special uh, I people? Got to think about that. I, it, you know, I'm a proud <laughs> papa, but I don't uh... – they may not want all the attention that brings, you know. Yeah, so. totally fair. I get it. Andy, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend coming up here. Thanks, Guy. That is Andy McCarthy on the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Did you see this story about Amazon Alexa? Reports are that they are testing a process by which Alexa would be able to learn people's voices and then mimic them perfectly. Apparently, potentially able to mimic a voice accurately within about one minute. So you could train your Alexa to respond with your own voice. And then other people are pointing out you could also get deceased friends, family, loved ones, I would assume famous people as well. So you could almost bring someone back to life through their voice using AI, which is actually very creepy to me. I know some people think this is very cool and a revolution that they look forward to. There are times when I see where technology is moving and maybe I'm getting old and crotchety, but I want to say well, maybe let's at least tap the brakes, if not stop, and think about this a little bit harder. Christine, are you a yay or a nay? Would you have your Alexa learn how to speak in the voice of Carousel? Oh, gosh. Well done. Well done. Got him. Didn't even see it coming. Neither did Carousel. Cookie's former pony for the unfamiliar RIP. we got to go and come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on the Guy Benson Show, we chatted with Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. She has a new piece out today, plus a couple other controversies that we discussed. Here is part of that exchange. Listen, you have a new piece at the Post about the mainstream media and this phenomenon of secret flights where... Illegal immigrants are flown all across the country to various places, often in the dark of night. What can you tell us about your piece? What do you think people need to know, and why have you written it? Well, look, I wrote it because uh, NPR on Monday just ran the most dishonest, shoddy story, uh, basically um, saying that all our reporting on the secret flights, which we've been doing since October, you know, going out to White Plains, watching these planes arrive because we got a tip off following the buses that take the illegal migrants to their destinations. Uh, We had a crew in Jacksonville where some of these flights uh, stop off on the way to New York. Um, And so we've done reporting for several months. And this lazy, shoddy piece of journalism just poo-poos all our work, discredits our reporting, says, you know, just basically takes the Biden administration's word for it and says, oh, you know, there's nothing really unusual about this surge in illegal migration and all that's happening. Oh, and come it just on. happened during the Trump administration. Yeah, they're just flying little kids around the country to be reunited with their family. It's a good news story. I mean, 
I don't understand how anyone can look at the current border crisis and say there's nothing unusual about this. It is highly unusual. They are shattering records month after month after month, and it's getting worse. I don't know how any journalist worth his or her salt can with a straight face report that it's just like, oh, nothing to see here. It's all just, you know, a typical government at work. I, that is not the case. Yes, and look, it's not just NPR. It's all of them. They either ignore the crisis or they downplay it. There was an absurd story in the New York Times where they interviewed their own reporter, who's the border reporter, right, who'd gone down to the border. They had a photograph accompanying it showing, you know, women, families. Most of these people are young men. They are um, working age men. They are coming in to basically take jobs from Americans at very low wages. They're slave labour. And it's obvious. You just have to look at them. And yet we are gaslit and lied to constantly. And the New York Times interviews their own person and says, who's down at the border, says, oh, there's, you know, I didn't notice much chaos here. Well, you know, there's the size <laughs> of Buffalo worth of people, 240,000 people came across the border illegally in May. That is the size of Buffalo or Toledo, right? This is enormous. It's going to have huge ramifications on this country for decades to come. And the New York Times says, oh, nothing to see here. Well, there's no chaos at the border because as soon as these people arrive, they get put on buses and planes and shipped off to the rest of the country. It is a conveyor belt. It is, an, it, They're very efficient at it. I'll give them that. The Biden administration, their logistics on moving migrants away from the border secretly in this clandestine, very expensive operation with multiple charter flights, with multiple charter airlines, is very efficient. You know, I would like for that New York Times reporter maybe to spend a few nights with the men and women of Border Patrol and the Texas Department of Public Safety because you absolutely see quite a lot of chaos. I don't know if they remember when the Texas National Guardsmen drowned in the Rio Grande trying to save yeah. what turned out to be alleged drug smugglers, the huge crush of people who cross at various border locations multiple times a day constantly, the number of people who are convicted felons getting caught, and God knows how many getting away. There were 50,000-plus gotaways that we know of last month alone. To, to pretend like this is all normal and not that chaotic is to deliberately close your eyes to a problem. And it really infuriates me, honestly, because they don't want to cover the reality because it's bad for their political team. I know that seems very cynical and blunt to say, but I believe that it's true. And they are willing to lie and call others liars simply for pointing out what actually is happening on a daily basis. My full interview with Miranda Devine, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, that free podcast is right there on demand, no charge to you every single day, including bonus Benson on the weekends, GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch, well, I was supposed to be in Florida right now. I'm not. We'll explain why next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Friday Eve, 
on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, free for you, on demand, right at your fingertips each and every day at that website or at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I had mentioned yesterday on the show that I was going to be on assignment today in Florida. And I am coming to you not from Florida, but from greater Washington, D.C., home base. I'm still here. What happened? Let me just say at the outset, I spared everyone my whining on social media because often I find even people that I like who are stuck in some sort of travel nightmare and they start tweeting about it. And it's like, you know, I hope it works out for you, but I don't really need every twist and turn. And they're tagging airlines and they're doing all this stuff. I think if you're going to bring out the big guns for something like that, it needs to be in an extenuating circumstance that really cries out for something like that. Not any time you're inconvenienced. I was very inconvenienced yesterday, but I didn't tweet about it except for one all-caps generic tweet. I literally call it a generic complaint about summertime travel delays and how much they suck, and they do. I had an early evening flight out of D.C. down to Florida for a scheduled event with Governor DeSantis and a few other people. I was really looking forward to it. It sounded very interesting, the group of people assembled in all of it. And, well, quite frankly, they are all gallivanting together down there right now in Fort Lauderdale at a beautiful hotel without me. Not that I'm bitter. But when I was pulling up to the airport, Adam dropped me. We saw a few bolts of lightning in the sky. And we looked at each other like, that's not great. But the app said everything was still on time. So I checked in, went through security. I get to the other side of security, and you've got the big board with all the flights, right? And you could just see the red bars popping up for cancellations. But my flight was not among them. So I got there. I went to the club for a moment to just get some water, actually, and some Coke Zero. And then it was about time to board. Our flight was there, meaning the plane was there. But, uh uh-oh, the crew was not. And that is when you start to get into trouble. As soon as they start telling you about crew issues, especially with bad weather, in many cases, you're screwed. So they delayed, and they delayed, and they delayed. They said, this crew is going to come in from Boston. They haven't left yet, but they're going to. No, they haven't yet. We're delaying further. And ultimately, that flight got canceled. Because I thought it might get canceled, I saw that there was another flight heading to Tampa, which is really not close to Fort Lauderdale, but it's closer than Washington. I said, maybe I can just get to Florida tonight. And if that means Tampa... I'll rent a car or even figure out an Uber or something. At least I can get within three to four hours, and it's drivable. So that was my backup plan. They were able to confirm a seat for me on the Tampa flight. Almost immediately after I get that seat, the Fort Lauderdale initial flight cancels. It's done. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself. We've got a plane. We've got a crew. And they said the crew had hours, like they weren't going to time out anytime soon due to FAA regulations or whatever. If you are a frequent traveler, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are not someone who flies a lot on airplanes, you're like, this is 
a jumble of jargon. Basically, you need an airplane, a crew to fly it with flight attendants, and they are all limited by the government of how much time they can wait before an extended period of time becomes too unsafe for them to be a crew on an airplane. So you're up against a clock. But they kept telling us at the desk, we're feeling good about this. The pilot was actually great. He was coming out. He was glad-handing. Apparently, he was previously serving drinks on the plane because they had everyone on the plane. They had boarded. Then they deplaned because of air traffic control and the weather. And he was coming out. He was shaking hands, kissing babies, sort of the mayor of this flight and the gate. And he was very helpful, but the weather just kept not clearing up. Other flights were leaving, but apparently on a different course, not heading in that direction. And after hours of multiple delays, even with a few hopeful moments where they had, okay, this crew had to leave, they were timing out, but we have a new crew. So they're getting on the airplane right now. Why would they be putting people on the plane if we aren't going to leave? Well, we never left. And the pilots eventually timed out. And so the Tampa flight was gone. I then started looking at flights very early this morning. Maybe I could fly down to Florida. The only option I could really see available was to Orlando at like 6 a.m. Then I'd have to drive again two, three hours to Fort Lauderdale. And while I was weighing whether or not that was going to work out, that flight canceled. So the longer the short of it is, it just didn't happen. And I had that very sad, almost walk of shame back in the other direction. Because I had gotten a dinner at the airport. I would gotten a drink at the airline club. And I don't blame United for any of this. This is weather stuff out of their control. But it's never a good feeling to go to the airport, spend, what, seven hours, I think, maybe eight hours there. And then turn right back around and go home. So I'm back on this weird thing they have, this contraption at Dulles called a people mover. Back to the main terminal to then get in an Uber. The guy, friendly, asks me how my flight was. (laughs) I was like, well, funny story. And I was on hold with United, and they were trying to put me on any flight that could get me to Florida. And all of them were going to land during or after this event, if this happened at all. And I guess some of these delays are still ongoing. It's just a mess out there across multiple regions of the country. I will say, though, this was frustrating. I texted to some of my friends who were going to be at this event. Carol Markowitz, she was like, I can't wait to hang out with you. I had to give her the bad news. And then Seth Dillon, my buddy who runs the Babylon Bee, he was actually in D.C. He said, hey, do you want to get together? I said, I can't. I'm going to Florida. I think we're going to be at the same thing. I figured he was going to get stranded as well. He texted me today. He somehow got on a flight on a different airline, out of a different airport, totally on time, flew from D.C. straight to Fort Lauderdale. So he'll be there. And that doesn't feel good. I was like, how did that happen? Anyway, I did everything that I possibly could. And we had some very cool interviews lined up at the event, which obviously will not be happening because I'm not there. But it looks like we're going to be able to get some of those folks in the coming days, because there are people eager to come on the show. The organizers were kept abreast of the whole ordeal that I was dealing with, and apparently a lot of other people are also having travel nightmares. So we're going to do our best to bring you some of those interviews 
maybe tomorrow, maybe early next week. We will fill you in as we get more information. But I will say the only, only, only people and individuals on the planet who were seemingly very happy about this for me were my husband and my dog because I wasn't leaving after all. Adam was disappointed for me. Roy, my dog, was not. He gets very sullen when I'm leaving because he can see that I'm packing. And he gets a little sad, a little bit mopey. Sometimes he takes his little bone and puts it into my suitcase while I'm packing, which is just about the cutest and saddest thing I can possibly imagine. And so I was only gone for a few hours, and I came back, and he gave me a hero's welcome. More so than when I'm gone for like a week. I was gone for hours. I came back, and he went crazy. Usually he shows his affection many ways. He gets very excited. He's not a lick-your-face kind of dog. He doesn't give you kisses, which I actually am generally okay with. He was so excited to see me home yesterday after this interval that I got a doggy kiss right on the face which was sort of sweet. The Yankees came back and won. There were a few silver linings to the evening. And then I had a phone call with producer Christine, who sounded like perhaps just a glass or two of Mama's Juice had been consumed. I relayed all of this information to her, and we then had to replan the entire rest of the week because I was going to be off today for the most part and then flying back tomorrow, and we had these interviews that we were going to play, and now that whole plan is gone. And then today we actually had an initial plan. That blew up this morning. So it's been a few days here, Christine, hasn't it? It sure has. And I definitely was feeling your pain so much so that I had an extra glass of mama's juice just Ah, for you last night. That is very selfless and thoughtful of you, right? It's vicarious stress drinking by you on my behalf. Yes. It, it was lovely. But I do have to say one thing to you. Okay. This whole situation could have been avoided. And do you know how? Well, yes, I should have gone down on Tuesday. And I thought about it. I thought about asking, hey, can I come down an extra day early? I can do the show from Florida on Wednesday. Everything's such a mess these days on air travel. Would you mind just getting me one extra night of hotel? I decided not to make that request. I tried to make the trip as tight as possible. And I didn't want to have to wait until after a special report. I think I was on on Tuesday. And so that was a tactical blunder. And I will have to take this under advisement in the future. I somehow guess, I'm just sense that that very practical answer to your question was not the actual answer you wanted me to give. No, because as... as you just laid out, I was not involved in that solution. So obviously that's not the solution I was going to give you. I see. Okay. Um, had you just invited your producer to go, I would have driven my SUV down to D.C., picked you up, and we would have road-tripped it down there, and oh. you would have been there right now. No, under no circumstances. Do you have any idea how long that drive is, Christine? No, I've never done it. I've always wanted From- to. From my door to the hotel would have been probably about 14 and a half hours. Think of the bonding we could have done. We could have stopped at south of the border. I've heard about that place. I mean, we could have stopped in Orlando, said hi to YY, surprised him. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine if we had showed up (laughs) at Disney on his birthday vacation? I think that might have – he might have snapped at that point. (laughs) The security. Just call security. But – 
No, I'm thinking about the bonding experience, and it is fortifying my belief that this would have been a completely wrong decision. And I stand behind that, but ugh, I'm really bummed. And I'm jealous because I know they're having so much fun in this beautiful place right now without me. Wah, wah. But at least I got to do the show today. And it was an interesting show with a lot of news. Back here tomorrow with even more. Same time, same place. It is The Guy Betson Show. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.